Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk Podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing, who will be part of the CanMed 2020 Conference in Pasadena, California, this September 20th through 22nd. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to canmedevents.com to learn more about this year's CanMed 2020 event. And yes, we are still planning to hold the event this fall while closely monitoring the COVID-19 situation. Having said that, we have modified our refund policy for ticket holders and sponsors to provide 100% refunds if the event is rescheduled due to the pandemic. All that information is up on our website. If you are planning to join us at CanMed 2020, and I really hope you are, now is the time to get your ticket. The full conference pass is just $420 through April 20th. That's more than half off the full price. The full conference pass gets you access to all the amazing presentations from the top cannabis science researchers access to coffee and lunch stations, as well as networking events, the exhibit hall, and more. Head over to canmedevents.com now to learn more and get your ticket. We have a great episode for you today. I was thrilled to be able to talk with Ethan Rousseau. Ethan has been studying the medicinal effects of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system for as long as anyone, perhaps with the exception of Professor Raphael Machulam, who coincidentally is Ethan's mentor. He has authored several peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, served as an advisor for cannabis companies and publications, and spoken at all the top cannabis conferences around the globe, including CanMed. In fact, I encourage anyone who's interested to check out his CanMed 2018 presentation about the link between the cannabinoid system, cannabis, and the gut microbiome. We get into that a little bit in our conversation, but we also cover some of the cannabis medicine basics, like what is the endocannabinoid system? So for any listeners who are new to cannabis medicine, this should give you a good foundation. Having said that, there's still plenty of meat on the bone if you're a more advanced listener. Before I play you my conversation with Ethan, we are proud to have his company, Credo Science, as this week's podcast sponsor. Credo Science LLC is an IP development company dedicated to solutions for better living based on forward-looking research into the cannabinoid system and related therapeutic applications for cannabis-based medicines and wellness solutions. For more information, go to credo-science.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please welcome Dr. Ethan Rousseau. Good morning, Ethan. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. First, I want to say that we're so excited to have you as a keynote presenter this year. Um, I was watching your CanMed 2018 presentation in in preparation for the call, and um, that was only 15 minutes, which just was not enough time. So I'm really happy that we've blocked off a full hour for you this time, because I know you have a lot of great information to share. Yeah, it'll be a luxury that I'm happy to exploit um, because the topic, uh, cannabis and psychiatry, is a really broad one, and it's been an under-recognized and underutilized area. Absolutely, and I'm really excited to talk with you about that, but um, I was hoping you'd indulge me and we could kind of start with the basics because I imagine there are some people who are 
new to the podcast, new to CanMed, who maybe are just starting their cannabis journey and maybe don't have sort of that foundational knowledge. So let's just, let's start from the top. And I was wondering if you give us a brief primer on what is the endocannabinoid system? Sure. Well, uh, the endocannabinoid system has been uh, known for about 30 years and been uh, in development during that time. And it basically uh, is the major homeostatic regulatory system of our physiology. Let's break that down because it's a mouthful. Uh, Basically, the endocannabinoid system is what keeps the rest of how we function in balance. So if there is too much activity in a system, the endocannabinoid system tends to bring it down into the normal level. And on the other hand, if there is an underactive system, it increases the gain back into the normal level. Um, Now, how this was discovered was uh, that about uh, 1990, it was found that there are receptors where THC binds. And not only that, but that we have endogenous cannabinoids, cannabinoids within, that also bind to that receptor. And as it turns out, this is what regulates neurotransmitter release uh, for the various neurotransmitters in the brain, uh, but it also regulates emotion, movement, pain, uh, whether someone will have a seizure or not, whether they're likely to vomit or not, Uh, It regulates digestion and almost every function of the body. Wow. So that's fascinating. And I think a lot of people are are surprised to hear that. Um, So I know that cannabis has been used for medicine for a long time, and it's only now sort of gaining exposure again. So in addition to cannabis, what other sorts of activities or foods can kind of stimulate the body's production of those endogenous cannabinoids? Well, there are actually a lot of things, and it's a complicated topic. Uh, the one clear one at this point is aerobic exercise. Uh, that seems to increase the gain of the endocannabinoid system. Uh, it's been shown that that boosts levels of anandamide, which is a natural chemical in the body. Uh, that is very akin in its function to to THC. Um, In terms of diet, there's no one food that I could tell people uh, is going to improve their endocannabinoid function. Uh, A lot of people have wondered about uh, fish oil and these kinds of things, and that can be very healthful. Um, But there isn't a one-to-one relationship between what you eat and what your endocannabinoid function is going to be. Uh, If I were going to suggest the simplest thing that seems to provide benefit, it would be prebiotics and probiotics. Um, Probiotics are going to be familiar to most people as the natural bacteria that are in yogurt and various fermented foods. And the prebiotics are generally vegetative matter uh, that these bacteria like that promote their growth Why this is important is um, because these bacteria reside in the gut, uh, and as it turns out, they are really key uh, to not only our nutrition, but brain function uh, and various other aspects of our health. Um, And it's a, a problem in modern life because the modern American diet in particular tends to be pro-inflammatory 
on and has been associated with uh, the vast increases in a number of autoimmune diseases, which were quite rare in the 19th century when people ate quite differently. Um, so when people are cognizant of these nutritional uh, issues, they really can help themselves out in fighting uh, chronic disease at the same time that they're increasing their endocannabinoid tone. Now, this would be, I imagine, a, a gross oversimplification, but you can't continue to have, you know, that standard American diet and then just ingest cannabinoids and expect to have an improvement, or can you? Well, uh, again, it's complicated. Uh, this is very surprising, but it's been shown that THC actually uh, favors certain gut bacteria that are more healthful and uh, is the reason that uh, chronic cannabis users uh, tend to be lean rather than uh, overweight, as one might expect due to the, the well-known munchies effect. Uh, so it's true that THC stimulates hunger, but in fact, it alters the gut bacteria in a way that helps prevent obesity. Um, so supplemental cannabinoids from cannabis um, can improve the situation, but uh, you know, not everyone is going to resort to that. And there are, again, these nutritional approaches with prebiotics and probiotics uh, that can provide, um, hopefully, uh, the same measures of protection. And now, does the delivery mechanism matter when ingesting cannabinoids? Uh, well, certainly in this instance, oral use is going to be better. Um, I don't advocate smoking uh, for medical use, and vaporization is better, but there are still uh, issues. Um, if someone needs has a condition for which they need chronic administration of a cannabis-based product, then almost always oral administration or oral mucosal with tinctures is going to be preferred. Excellent. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of explain sort of what is the mechanism with how these cannabinoids interact with the body? You had mentioned receptors before, but sort of walk us through when, when you ingest cannabis, sort of what's the what's going on in the body? Well, uh, first, I have to point out how complicated it is. Uh, there are at least 150 natural cannabinoids in the plant, and they're quite distinct in their function. So on the one hand, THC works directly on cannabinoid receptors. Uh, the CB1 receptor, which is predominant in the brain, um, and CB2, which is a non-psychoactive receptor that's immunomodulatory, also involved in pain and uh, reduction of, of inflammation. Um, so different ones work uh, differently. Uh, CBD, cannabidiol, uh, actually doesn't bind directly uh, very well at all to CB1 or CB2. On CB1, it does alter the binding of THC in a way that helps reduce THC-associated side effects. But um, CBD acts on a whole bunch of other mechanisms in the body, uh, primarily to reduce inflammation. Um, but also, uh, it, uh, like THC, is anti-emetic. It reduces nausea and vomiting. Um, it's also associated uh, with anti-anxiety effects and antipsychotic effects, which are contrary to what excesses of THC will do. 
Um, and then there are a whole bunch of other activities uh, with CBD. Another one would be uh, working directly on another receptor called the TRIP-V1 receptor, which is the same place where capsaicin, the active ingredient in chili peppers works, but CBD isn't caustic uh, the way capsaicin is. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we could go on and on for an hour just on that topic. Sure. And that brings up an interesting point because there is sort of a, a debate between um, healthcare professionals about what's better, the whole plant medicine or these single compounds. And it sounds from what you were just describing that getting a combination of different compounds is what really drives the medicinal effect. Well, I'm a firm believer in that. Um there's been a movement by some companies towards uh, producing cannabinoids, uh, either by bacteria or yeast, um, but they're never going to have the range of activities that a whole cannabis extract will with its combination of ingredients. Um, there's a term for this called the entourage effect that refers to synergies between different components, and that can consist of boosting a positive effect or reducing a negative side effect. Um, uh, so I think it's extremely unlikely that any single compound uh, will have the breadth uh, of activity or the safety profile of a properly constituted cannabis-based medicine. And with so many different strains and, and cultivars out there, how hard is it to sort of zero in on one combination of cannabinoids, flavonoids, terpenoids that really gets that desired effect? Well, I'm afraid it's really a function of uh, where somebody lives. Um, in certain jurisdictions, mainly on the West Coast, there's a wide variety of available chemovars or chemical varieties, and it may be possible uh, with good labeling and good knowledge at point of sale uh, for someone to seek out the prof profile of cannabinoids and terpenoids that's going to be optimal to treat their condition. That situation does not obtain most places, however. Um, so right now it's uh, very difficult and still hindered by the continued prohibition um, on uh, cannabis. Um, so we're severely limited in what um, industry can do and also the ability to do research on these kinds of topics. And I got to imagine consistency is another issue. Um, I had a conversation recently with a, um, a cannabis safety testing lab and the, the woman I was speaking with was talking about how just within the plant itself, different buds from different areas of the plant can have really different uh, chemical profiles. Um, so I got to imagine that's another reason why you probably are advocating more for uh, a tincture-based type delivery system. Uh, sure. The, what you pointed out is quite true. There's going to be a, a different cannabinoid profile, uh, mainly greater amounts in the top buds rather than ones lower down in the plant that might not get as much sun exposure. Uh, the way around this is through pooling. Um, in other words, um, uh, if we had a field of cannabis, uh, you would collect all the, uh, the flowers and uh, extract them. And uh, with cloning, vegetative propagation, um, and uniform growing conditions best done in a, a greenhouse, it is absolutely possible to get uh, extreme levels of consistency over time. 
Uh, and that's precisely how Sativex, uh, the cannabis-based medicine developed uh, in England, which is um, has regulatory approval in 30 countries. That's exactly how it was produced. Uh, so it has been done. It's not a simple process. It's a long process, it's an expensive process, but it absolutely has been done and can be done again. Okay, so so going back to these endogenous cannabinoids, now, is there sort of like a one-to-one relationship between, you know, what the body produces and what the plant produces um, in terms of uh, the compounds? Uh, no, unfortunately, it's always more complicated than one might hope. Um, as I've mentioned, anandamide uh, is quite analogous to THC, and they're both they both are what are called weak partial agonists at the CB1 receptor. This is a way of saying um, that they're not super high potency. They work through a great deal of subtlety uh, on this receptor that uh, is so widespread in the brain and body uh, to regulate neurotransmitter function and all these other functions. Uh, but there is another uh, main player, let's say, among the uh, endocannabinoids. It's called 2-arachidonal glycerol, 2-AG. It's a little bit different. It works in different areas of the brain. It has a higher affinity uh, for the receptor. Um, so it, it's not a simple relationship. Um, and they are all these things are chemically distinct. There are at least subtle differences in how they act uh, in different places. All right. Interesting. So I was wondering if you could kind of share with us what conditions have benefited the most, or I should say, what conditions have had the most research to support cannabis as a medicine? Uh, sure. Sure. Well, it's actually a short list. Uh, it's long been known uh, the benefits of THC and cannabis-based medicine and treating uh, nausea associated with chemotherapy, uh, also in AIDS wasting. Uh, additionally, Sativex, as mentioned, uh, is approved in 30 countries for spasticity or muscle tightness associated with multiple sclerosis. Um, there also has been a great deal of evidence of certain uh, cannabis preparations and treating various types of chronic pain, especially neuropathic nerve-based pain. Um, beyond that, uh, we have a tremendous amount of anecdotal evidence for a variety of other conditions, but it's not always uh, borne out um, in randomized clinical trials. Now, if we're talking about specifically cannabidiol, it's an approved drug as Epidiolex through the FDA for treatment of severe epilepsy syndromes, Lennox-Gastaut and Dravet syndrome. Uh, and that's a relatively recent event uh, starting in 2018. Um, additionally, there have been two phase two clinical trials of pure cannabidiol in high doses uh, to treat schizophrenia. Uh, and it seemed to be as effective as conventional drugs, but with many fewer side effects. All right. And then on the flip side, what are some emerging applications for cannabis therapeutics? Well, that's wide open. Um, you know, the, one of the exciting areas is uh, treatment of primary cancer. In other words, using high doses of cannabinoids to treat uh, cancer directly, much as chemotherapy would do. 
the advantage there is that um, most chemotherapy agents are highly toxic in and of themselves, whereas the cannabinoids are selective in uh, their ability to kill cancer, but are not damaging to normal cells. So this is a distinct difference. And uh, beyond that, there's the whole area of psychiatry, which has heretofore been sort of a forbidden territory, but uh, really needs uh, further investigation for the vast uh, kinds of improvements that uh, properly uh, constituted cannabis-based medicine could provide. Yeah, so let's get into that, because I know that is going to be the topic of your presentation this year. Uh, sure. Well, you know, let's uh, talk about different conditions. Um, there was an, one of the uh, most interesting areas is post-traumatic stress. Um, some years ago, there was an excellent study by Matt Hill et al. that looked at survivors of the 9-11 uh, tragedy. Um, there were two groups. There were people that were in the area in lower Manhattan um, to the events there that developed post-traumatic stress, and then people that were there that did not. And they looked at the cerebrospinal fluid using spinal taps on these people and showed clear differences. There was a deficit of endocannabinoids in the people who developed PTSD as opposed to those who didn't have post-traumatic stress. Um, and this is a demonstration of uh, deficient endocannabinoid function in people with post-traumatic stress. Um, similarly, uh, in severe depression, um, people may be aware that when drugs fail, uh, there is still uh, a technique called um, uh, electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy uh, for people with severe depression. Um, so what that does as a side effect um, is produces some short-term memory impairment at the same time that there's a rapid improvement in mood. Now, a long time ago, it occurred to me that, gee, I wonder if the endocannabinoid system is involved in this effect. And a couple of years ago in Germany, in fact, after uh, ECT treatments, it was shown that there were big increases um, in the endocannabinoid levels as opposed to before treatment. Um, so this is a certain demonstration of the importance of um, cannabinoids um, in uh, depression. Uh, similarly, anxiety is definitely associated um, with endocannabinoid deficiencies. And as already mentioned uh, in schizophrenia, although it's true that too much THC at a young age uh, in a predisposed individual could unmask uh, psychosis, um, I, cause a, a psychotic break. Um, in fact, though, uh, cannabidiol is an effective treatment for schizophrenia itself. Uh, so those are just a few examples. Those are some very interesting examples. I had never heard that um, that factoid about the folks with um, at 9-11 kind of having a very different response with PTSD and it being tied back to endocannabinoids. Um, that's fascinating. Uh, sure. Um, you know, and it supplements a whole bunch of animal work, which, 
you know, sometimes is illuminating and sometimes it's not, but this is clearly a study done in humans, uh, very much on point. So now, you know, and I'm glad that you brought up endocannabinoid deficiency, because when I was sort of gathering my research for this conversation and reading about the endocannabinoid system, I, I immediately went there and thought that, you know, if this is something that the body is producing, there must be some people who are deficient on it. And sure enough, I Googled it and whose name comes up, but Ethan Rousseau, because <laughs> you did obviously a lot of, a lot of research into this um, going back many years. So I'm curious, what causes this deficiency? Is it because of diet? Is it behavior? Is it genetic? Or is it a combination of all those things? Yeah, it is all of the above. Um, so this is a theory I developed about uh, 2000. Well, it was published first in 2001, more extensively in 2004, then with a follow-up paper in 2016. And the idea was that we know that many neurologic conditions especially are due to neurotransmitter deficiencies. Uh, so I hypothesized, well, why wouldn't there be conditions in which there is a deficiency of endocannabinoid function? And if so, what would it look like? And uh, certain things came to mind, and these would be conditions where there's uh, a hypersensitivity uh, to life, if you were, uh, where there's pain, where we don't identify anything wrong with the tissue, uh, there seems to be an overreaction, and you can't provide another explanation. Um, and the three conditions that most readily came to mind were migraine, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and fibromyalgia. And what's interesting is that uh, these tend to occur in the same individuals. A person may have one, two, or all three of these conditions at some point in their life. They're all what are called diagnoses of exclusion, meaning that we don't have blood tests or diagnostic tests for them. But if you fit a clinical pattern um, and we've ruled out everything else, that's what you call it. Um, they all have a hypersensitivity of the senses um, producing pain, uh, but in the case of migraine, also sensitivity of, of the eyes to light and the ears to sound. Uh, these are painful stimuli, whereas to someone else, it's just the normal background. Um, uh, so there's a great deal of overlap. Going back to what you asked, uh, how does this happen? Well, there are certain genetic tendencies. They're not uh, genetically inherited the way eye color is, however. Uh, they also could be acquired. A lot of people with irritable bowel syndrome will develop the condition after they have uh, either had antibiotics or uh, have had uh, some kind of infection, like eating bad clams, um, and uh, can go on and on and on. Uh, with fibromyalgia, it often follows an injury that fails to heal and develops into a more encompassing generalized pain syndrome. Um, so there seems to be inciting events and, and certainly diet enters into it again. Uh, interestingly, um, with uh, prebiotic and probiotic diet, almost all of these conditions will uh, improve. Uh, and it really depends on uh, the degree to which one adheres to that and uh, engages in other um, lifestyle approaches that seem to benefit the conditions. 
Now, is there a test one can get to see if they're deficient in endocannabinoids? Uh, not currently, but we're working on that. I mean, a lovely thing would be if we had a non-invasive scan of the scan of the brain that would uh, show us the uh, density of the receptors and their current level of activities, or we could measure endocannabinoid levels without doing a lumbar puncture, a spinal tap. But right now, um, no. And there, there could be genetic tests uh, that would identify uh, these issues. Uh, we're working on one such uh, situation now um, to see. Um, right. Yeah. And another thing that a lot of people talk about with using cannabis is that the effects can vary widely between different individuals. Is that does that have to do with deficiencies or different levels of endocannabinoids? Yeah, exactly. Again, we're invoking this hypothetical endocannabinoid tone. Um, so how an individual will respond to a given dose of cannabis will depend on their prior experience, uh, whether they have tolerance, if they've been a regular user, and it would be a function of the numbers of CB1 receptors in the brain, whether they're active or inactive, uh, the levels of endocannabinoids in the brain, and also the activity of the enzymes that make those substances and break them down. Um, so pretty complicated uh, concept. And again, um, we have either direct or indirect proof of a lot of these concepts. But right now, it's not a simple thing where someone can go out and, and get tested uh, to see what their levels are. Uh, in the future, yeah, we'd hope for that. It would be very useful. Yeah, one of the things you keep coming back to, and it sticks out in my mind because I'm a very active person, I'm a runner. Um, you keep talking about how activity can sort of help modulate the endocannabinoid system. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Uh, sure. Well, you know, this is a very topical issue right now because, uh, for instance, where I live, um, uh, suddenly uh, the gym is closed and the parks are closed. Uh, normally we take the dogs out for a run every day. Um, and uh, in addition to the depression that people are, are having because of COVID-19, uh, they're going to become chemically depressed uh, without their aerobic activity. Uh, I hope you're not experiencing that, but everyone's going to be at risk for this. Uh, for shut in for long periods of time. Um, so, I mean, that would be one example. Again, this is a situation where we have some human data uh, showing the relationship of aerobic exercise to increased endocannabinoid levels. There was one such study in fibromyalgia uh, just recently. Uh, years ago, when I was in neurology practice, I made the statement, which I hold to today, uh, that in fibromyalgia, I've never seen anyone who improved uh, without uh, the addition of a low-impact aerobic activity program to their regimen. Um, and uh, I think the reason is uh, improvement in, in endocannabinoid levels. Wow, that's fascinating. So we're coming up to the end here, and I did want to ask you, you've been researching cannabis medicine, applying cannabis medicine for so long now, how have attitudes among other healthcare providers sort of changed over the years? 
Uh, well, there's been improvement. Uh, we're getting better acceptance at this point, but uh, the problem remains. So uh, we still have vast prohibitions uh, active throughout a lot of the world, including this country. And um, until or unless uh, those roadblocks to research and uh, wider availability of cannabis-based medicines uh, occurs, uh, we're going to have a situation where there are a lot of people out there that would benefit from these types of treatments that just don't have access at this time. Uh, so no matter how much things have changed or improved, uh, there's vast potential for improvement yet. So we, if we have any patients out there that want to maybe help educate their healthcare providers. Are there some resources that are, are good to point them towards? Uh, sure, there are a lot of good things online. Um, uh, I might point to uh, the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines, that's cannabis-med.org. Um, a variety of my papers are available online now at ethanrusso.org. Um, and, um, yeah, there's a lot of good information available. Excellent. I know you just plugged your website. Are there other ways people can get in touch with you or hear more about what you're doing? Uh, well, I hope that uh, we'll be able to um, do the CanMed uh, conference. And uh, additionally, uh, there are a large number of recordings uh, online. Uh, if someone just uh, goes to YouTube and um, inputs Ethan Russo and cannabis, they'll find uh, plenty of material. Excellent. And I will definitely put the links to your prior CanMed appearances in the show notes here and um, provide a link to your website as well. And yes, we're very hopeful that CanMed 2020 is going to go off without a hitch this fall. Uh, we're monitor monitoring the situation closely, but as it stands right now, um, we're going to be there and we're excited to have you there as well, Ethan. Um, so thanks again for taking the time to talk with us today. And if I don't see you before then, we'll see you in Pasadena this fall. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ethan Rousseau. Check out our keynote announcement blog post to learn more about him and all the important work he has done to push cannabis medicine research forward. I've also included a link to his CanMed 2018 presentation in the show notes. Be sure to check out our next episode where I will talk with Martin Lee from Project CBD. Martin and his wife Tiffany DeVitt recently wrote an article titled Cannabis, CBD, and COVID-19 that explores what science says about CBD as an antiviral agent. You can check out that article at projectcbd.org. I think you will find it a well-researched article that presents some interesting data while not making any grandiose claims. That episode will drop April 29th, two weeks from this episode. In the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2020 VIP dinner. And it'll also keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2020. If social media is your thing, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you're listening via a podcast app, go ahead and hit subscribe 
so you can get new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.